Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I am beyond excited to welcome Mark Nepo. Mark is a best-selling author, beloved poet, teacher, seeker, storyteller, and philosopher. Mark's profound spiritual awakening occurred in 1987 after he was diagnosed with a rare form of lymphoma. Mark's story and his journey is one that fills the soul with hope and inspiration. For today's conversation, I'll be joined by my guest co-host, Seth Kaplan. Mark, I am so grateful to have you on the show today. This is a little bit of a pinch me moment. Um, but let's get started by talking about the beginning of your journey. You know, I think one of the amazing things um, about being here is that we're, we're all, we all come here and then we actually try to, I think, um, recover that sense of birth repeatedly through loving, through wonder, through meeting adversity, through helping each other. We're always looking for that feel of of how fresh it is to be here and to recover the sense that this moment has never happened before. And everything we do in life, not always because of our fault, but just the nature of living a, a spirit in a body and time on earth, we forget. We take the garbage out, we trip, we swear, and then we forget how rare it is to be here. So, so much of our journey is in constantly the practice of remembering and inhabiting how rare it is to be here at all. So with that said, you know, my own version of that is, um, you know, I think I look back and I think that... um, at a very early age, before I had any language for poetry or metaphor or spirit, um, the world, nature, spirit, God, whatever you want to call that which is larger than us, always spoke to me through metaphor. I mean, that is everything without words was all, even as a little child, you know, like the wind through the trees would be saying, pay attention. This is like, what, what am I like? What am I like? Listen, pay attention. And after a while, you know, I thought somewhere along the way, someone said, Oh, that's a metaphor. I said, Oh, okay. (laughs) Uh, They're dear to me. They're my great teachers. And, um, but, you know, I, at an early age, I, I, I knew I was a poet. Um, And I knew that from a kind of a mystical moment when I was in college, I was an undergraduate in Cortland State, which is out between Binghamton and Syracuse, New York, a small state school that's on the top of a hill. And um, and at the bottom of the hill in every direction is a bar or a restaurant. It was a little town, upstate town. But I was as a freshman, I was walking from the top of the hill down one day and um, it was in springtime and a, and a huge wind came from behind me past my ear, went across the vast expanse over the valley. And on the next hill, which was maybe a mile or two away, I could see it move through the trees. 
And I didn't really understand it, but I, but I understood the reach of the wind. And somehow I knew I was a poet. I just knew it. And, um, but we fast forward, you know, I, I worked very hard. Wanted, I went to, you know, graduate school and got my doctorate in poetry and um, began teaching at the University of Albany in my late 20s. <clears throat> and, and then in my early 30s, um, you know, I was stricken with a rare form of lymphoma, of cancer. And everything changed. I was thrown inside out and upside down. And, um, and, you know, I had been working very hard uh, in, an, in a real earnest way. To, how could I be a good teacher? How could I? Well, maybe, maybe if I worked really hard, I might be able to write one or two great poems in my life, you know? Well, all of a sudden, you know, I'm in a hospital. I had never had anything really that serious happen to me. And uh, I was terrified of everything. And forget writing great poems. I needed to discover true poems that would help me live. It all became very real, very quickly. And, and you know, and I'll get more into that story, but you know, now uh, next week I'll, I'll turn 70, which seems impossible to me. I, when I met people my age when I was young, I thought they were ancient. What well, doesn't seem so old right now. <laughs> um, but, you know, now, now I want to be the poem. Now I want to be the poem. But back in my 30s, um, you know, this rare form of lymphoma, which appeared uh, in my skull bone, I was growing a tumor there that was the size of a grapefruit and it was appearing, you know, outwardly, it was huge and it was that big inwardly as well, pressing on a quarter of my brain. And I should have had all kinds of neurological symptoms and problems, but I didn't. It was there, but I felt fine other than that as a friend at the time said, I was growing a second head. But other than that, <clears throat> everything was fine. Um, and so it was a mystery and I had to go through a whole gauntlet of tests and uh, procedures to discover that it was in fact a rare form of lymphoma. And, and so <clears throat> the first thing that happened there was, um, that after about three months or four months of, of going through all these difficult, very painful and difficult experiences, um, I found myself um, needing to have a biopsy. I, my first angel was a neurosurgeon, Dr. John Pop, who is now, he was at Albany Medical School, but he's now out in California, I think at Stanford. And here was a man who had done, I was scheduled to have a craniotomy. They were going to go in and, and take this piece of whatever it was out of my head. Um, and I knew that the tumor was fluctuating. I felt it shifting. I felt it receding. 
but of course no one would believe me but Dr. Pop. And so I was all scheduled for um, a craniotomy. I had had been given Dilantin, which is a anti-seizure medicine to make sure during the procedure, nothing would happen um, where I would start moving around. And the night before, about 1130 at night, he came in, I was supposed to be operated on at seven in the morning. And he said, I, I've done hundreds of these operations, but I believe you, I don't know what's going on. So I want to wait. I want to bring in one more specialist. And so my first angel was, he saved my life by not doing anything, by not doing what he was expert at, by admitting he didn't know what was happening, by moving out from behind the curtain of all his knowledge. And so strangely, my IV was pulled out of my arm and I was sent home for a week you know, like thrown like Jonah out of the mouth of the whale. And I came back in and then, and always because no one knew if when I would need to be put under with general anesthesia. So all of these procedures and tests along the way, I had to be experienced uh, while awake, which wasn't fun. Um, and was my first lesson in facing fear you know, because the first lesson was because I was afraid of everything I met, you know, on a scale of one to 10, everything I met was a 14 and through no wisdom on my part, it didn't work. I exhausted my heart and therefore it wasn't available to me to actually help me heal. So I was forced to start to discern to see things as they are, as the Buddhists say. I had to say, oh, I'm being wheeled in. I'm going to have an angiogram where they snake this tiny metal thing up through your groin, all the way up into your brain while you're awake and say, well, on a scale of one to 10, do I want to do this? No. Is it really a 10? Well, no, maybe it's a six. Okay. Maybe it's a six and I have to go through it. Or a nurse would come in and move me in the bed and I'd say, this is, I don't want to do this. Don't move me. Well, that's not really a 14. That's like a two. Okay. But so in, in, in the first lesson in facing fear is that fear gets its power from not looking. And when we can look, it doesn't eliminate fear, but it right sizes fear. And then as we see things as they are, we still have the resources of our heart to meet what we actually face. So I'll remember to tell a story about meeting fear a little later. Um, but so, um, so I was, I didn't have a, 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 a craniotomy. Instead, Dr. Pop did an open biopsy where he took a sample from that tumor um, while I was awake and, um, I mean, he numbed up my head, but it, but I was awake and it, that's when it was, it was discovered. It was a rare form of lymphoma. And then I was turned over to the world of oncology. And, um, and so I went through, um, 
this whole kind of gauntlet of things. And then finally, about a month later, um, I was scheduled to have uh, spinal chemotherapy and whole head radiation. The only side effects of that uh, were it could affect my speech and my memory, which for me are like knees to a quarterback. And so before I was supposed to start these, these treatments, I insisted on one more MRI because I knew that the tumor was vanishing. It was fluctuating. It was getting smaller, even though no one else believed me in the world of oncology. And so I'll, I'll never forget because it was October 15th, which is like an anniversary for me, but this was in 1987, almost more than 30 years ago now. And uh, the morning before I was supposed to have the MRI, I woke up about five o'clock in the morning and the tumor was gone. It had vanished from my head. And I knew this immediately because <clears throat> of the stillness I felt because having the tumor, the energy was like a constant vibration. And when I woke up that morning, that vibration was gone. So I went in, I had the MRI, and by this time, uh, my former wife and my oldest friend, who still is my dearest friend, I just spoke with him yesterday. Um, and we, I got a separate set of films and which I was getting now regularly and out in the waiting room, I held it up to the fluorescent lights and it was gone. It was gone. It was a miracle. And I was thrown back into life. Can I ask where, this is a silly question, but where did it go? Uh, nobody knows. Can that happen? Is that, is that something, obviously it's rare, but you know, and, and speaking with your doctors, they must've been shocked. Well, my, Dr. Pop, who was the neurosurgeon, who already demonstrated his acceptance of the unknown, he was surprised, but not surprised. The rest of the medical community called me an anomaly. I, I was, it shouldn't have happened. So, but, but you see, so it's very interesting because in and this is in our society, you know, in the social society, in the legal society, you're innocent until proven guilty. In the medical society, you're sick until proven well. So nobody approached me to say, well, what, are, what was this like? What, what happened? How come this happened? What can we learn because this happened to you that's a, that might be of use to others? It was no, well, that's weird push him out of the pool. We don't want to count that because we can't explain it. And so this is this in, you know, in the rest of our lives, mystery isn't, you know, it's interesting that in the, in society, when you say mystery, people think murder mysteries, you, you go into a bookstore, there's a whole section mystery and it's all about people killing people. It's not about the real mystery the mystery of life, the mystery that is that no matter what we know, there is always more than what we know. Mark, hearing you discuss your experience, it really only demonstrates how little we know about this journey we are on. 
when the oncologist told you the cancer was gone, what were the first thoughts that crossed your mind? And how did you have that conversation with friends and family? Well, my, my first, my first feeling of course was gratitude and relief. And then confusion, not confusion about what happened to me. I never doubted what, but all of a sudden I was thrown back into life and my whole sense of who I was and what I was, was pulled out from under me. I, you know, I, I went back to teaching, uh, you know, um, and, and I felt like, I mean, I answered to my name I kept my appointments, but I felt like I was keeping someone else's appointments. I recognized everything, but everything was that, that fresh sense of birth again, like, oh my God, what, what now? Which was exciting and confusing. And one of the things that happened to me on the other side, and then I, there's a second part to this cancer story. I'll get to that. Um, but one of the things that happened to me is that before my cancer journey, I was a young driven artist. And on the other side, I lost my drive. It was gone, which was very, that was more upsetting than anything. What did I survive for if I can't use my gift? What's, where is it? What happened? And it, it was disorienting for six or eight months. And what I came to understand was I was drawn now more than driven. And it actually was the doorway to joy and to my being prolific. And so the way that I understand this is a metaphor that is, you know, a, a river has a lot of force, a, a mighty river, because it's held by its banks and that water rushes and it makes a lot of noise. But when that river, like the Mississippi, hits the delta and it hits, it starts to go into the ocean, well, the current doesn't disappear. It joins the larger body of water and goes deeper. And so it makes less noise as it joins with everything larger than it. And so I hadn't lost my drive. It had been transformed and I had to reacquaint myself with it and it was the doorway to everything so mark you've talked about how there are two ways for people to really experience or force into growth one is to be completely broken down the other is willfully shedding um that has hit home for me so many times whether it's like you have to rebuild after going through an experience that really shakes you and breaks you. And then there's others where you make that choice to be wanting to be better or change. You went through cancer, not just once. And once you kind of started to get your bearing back, you got another diagnosis. Yeah. How did you have to experience that growth or that kind of being broken down, not once, but twice. Yeah. And I would say short period of time. Yeah. Thank you, Mallory. And I would just say that, that it's be the two ways that I, the way I characterize is broken open. Now we all, you know, it's not that we don't reframe everything. We can't reframe everything in a positive, you know, sometimes we're just broken 
And sometimes we're broken open. And the thing is, we can't, just like we can't tell when the mystery will inform us, we can't tell when I might walk out today and be broken or be broken open. But the important thing is that what, we'll, we'll take turns at this. So when I'm broken open, I can help you if you're broken because tomorrow we're gonna switch. So we're either broken open or we willfully shed. And they're like X and Y chromosomes. They're like spiritual chromosomes. And usually it's a combination, but we don't have to worry because if, if we won't willfully shed, we will be broken open. <laughs> we don't have to worry about it. It's like erosion for nature is what suffering is for human beings. I don't, it's not like I don't advocate suffering. It's like describing uh, geography and physics like spiritual physics. But to your question, so, so within a year of having that tumor vanish in my skull, um, it actually turned out that, uh, and no one knows exactly how this happened in me, but there was a small, tiny sister tumor that my, the tumor in my brain was so dramatic that no one, not even me, because I had access to all the x-rays and MRI films, but there was a small little tumor on a rib in my back. And, you know, one doctor surmised, thought that the, the, the tumor originally started here in my sternum and split and something went here and something went, but no one will ever know. But anyway, uh, you know, almost a year later, that tumor started to grow. And now, you know, I had this same thing on in my back and, um, and that, you know, the first time I didn't, I really didn't think I would die. I was terrified of what I would have to go through in order to live. It never occurred to me, maybe because I was still in my early thirties and it was so, you know, shocking all of this. And I was preoccupied with everything I'd have to go through that I didn't get to the fear of death. <laughs> But, but when, I, when that tumor started growing on my rib, then I was really in despair. Then I was afraid I would die. Then I was like, you know, I don't need a wake up call. I got it, I'm awake, okay? Well, you know, how is this happening again? Why is this happening? And that was my first lesson is that uh, in this regard that I no longer ask why, I only ask how, because why will drive you mad? There is no answer to what, you know, just look in nature. You can look out here in, in our backyard and you can see ants spending months building an anthill. And then a, a, a storm comes through and a branch falls from a tree and disperses their entire anthill. So I imagine, you know, the ants, if they could talk, are having an existential crisis. Why? There is no God. Why me? Well, why not me? Why not me? You know, I, and, and I honestly say, you know, I, while I felt a lot of things, I never felt why me, quite honestly. Because uh, why not me? You know, it takes, I've learned since, and this is so amazing, you know, it takes six million pollen grains to seed one peony. So why are we any different? We're the only ones we think, well, I, I dream, I want, I aim, and I should get what I want. 
Well, no, we're part of nature. It's going to take maybe not six million, but it's going to take a couple of dozen thing, tries for anything. So back to, so I was a, a really in despair. And this time the tumor didn't vanish. And I had to have that rib removed from my back surgically along with the adjacent muscles. And then I had to go. So because it was a rare form of lymphoma, even though they think that they thought that they got everything, I was a candidate for a very aggressive chemo, which was a protocol known as CHOP or the initials of the drugs. And I don't know if it's used anymore, but it was very, very, uh, very rough. And, um, and I had four months of chemo until the chemo started killing me. And I had to say, stop. So, so now I learned over both of these uh, episodes, these journeys, that miracle is a process, not an event. And that, you know, I had to make a different decision at every step of the way in order to be here. I had to say, you know, uh, yes to, uh, well, no, no to the surgery and no to spinal chemotherapy and yes to surgery later and yes to chemo and no to chemo because, you know, suddenly, you know, I, st I had neuropathy, which uh, from the chemo, which numbs and starts to deaden your nerve, the end of all your nerves, which take year. I still have a little, even all these years later, and it also it gave me an ulcer in my esophagus. And I learned years later, I have hearing aids because it affected, it damaged my hearing. Um, because chemo affects fast growing cells and the cilia in your ears that help you hear are fast growing cells. Um, and nobody even talked about that because they didn't really think I'd even be here. I mean, I had, you know, one or two doctors that were angels and, you know, there was a difference. I was handled by many, but healed by few. What do you, and, what do you tell, what do you tell cancer patients who are going through it today? You know, you've, you've survived it. Um, you have a very unique story. One that I don't know that, you know, many people can uh, identify with as far as the first time, the second time, obviously is something that many cancer patients go through. What is your message to them if, if a cancer, if somebody who's going through cancer uh, today or, or a family member uh, who's going through, through cancer today, well, what would you first, tell them? The first thing is my heart goes out to every single person. It, it is an unbelievable journey. And, and you know what I offer, and because I don't, you know, even with everything we talk about, what, I don't have answers. I, what I offer are examples, not instructions. And and the first thing that I, I offer to remind uh, people is that no one that is you has ever been here or gone through what you're going through. So, you know, there were lots of people who told me that I shouldn't be here. And now we're talking 34 years later. So no one, you know, we need all the information, but you're not the information. We need the information to make choices, but no, 
No one who's ever been you has ever had this now. So no one knows what's going to happen. And doctors, and you know, uh, for all their gifts, many doctors play God. You know, they will not admit, like Dr. Pop, that they don't know. You know, I had, you know, as good as Dr. Pop was, I, my first oncologist was awful. I, I was thrown in there for the first time. I hadn't even met the guy yet. I'm waiting in a room. He comes in, and the first thing he says, not even hello, throws my chart down, and he says, well... Even if you beat this now, it'll probably come back in seven to 14 years and kill you. Without even saying hello. And so, you know, he didn't know that. He had no right to say that. It was beyond his expertise. And he didn't have the humility to admit that. And, you know, until I hit year 14, on days when I wasn't strong, or I was having a bad day, I heard his voice in the back of my head. So he, you know, that's where we uh, do, that's where people can do good poorly. You know, so the second thing that I would offer to people who are going through this is to reach out for help. Don't try to do this alone. We are more together than alone. And, you know, uh, you know, one of the things that I like to say, you know, half joking is you, you don't interview ambulance drivers, you take the first one. So, you know, this is how we're forced to grow. You may be socially awkward, you may be shy, too bad, you're going to have to reach out, you're going to have to call up someone you don't know so well and say, help, I need help. And that's how you meet friends. And that's how you meet brothers and sisters that you didn't know were brothers and sisters because you're forced to cross that line. And now the inner medicine meets the outer medicine. Mark, you mentioned when you were first diagnosed with cancer, you were not afraid of death or dying. It didn't really cross your mind. However, the second time you received the diagnosis, you were afraid. I know for me, and I'm sure other listeners can relate, I have often thought about dying or what that phase of my life would look like. Um, But I also know that there's a fear in me of dying as well. Do you think those who are afraid of dying have not learned how to really live yet? Well, um, well, thank you. That's a wonderful question to walk with together. So, um, well, let's back up a second, and and uh, and actually was preparing uh, some teaching stuff around around this on, on a topic about our conversation with death, and and so we all have a, everyone, whether we like it or not, has to have a conversation with death. Life and death are actually I have found entwined, inseparable, and because it's understandable, we we realize that we want to be here. And then we realize, oh, we're not going to be here forever. And the conversation starts. And we can run from it. We, but the thing that happens, if we don't have a relationship with death, then it, it gains power. It's like if you, if you have a hose and you allow it to be unkinked, then it flows. But if you kink it, there's a lot of pressure. So if you don't have that conversation, then when you finally are forced to listen to or talk 
to death, it's overwhelming. And you go and you say, well, if that's the way it's going to be, I'm never going to do this. And you make it worse. So the, the thing is that over a lifetime, we have to be in conversation with life and death. And, and so I think that we run from what we're afraid of. It's human enough. But this is where we need to find the courage alone and together to move more fully into life. So here's a quick story. This is a great, great, uh, great insight about how to relate to death. And it comes from, I don't know if you, have you ever heard of Carlos Castaneda? No, okay, Carlos Castaneda um, in the 70s or 80s, he wrote these series of books. Uh, the one that I would recommend is called Journey to Ixland, I-X-T-L-A-N. And very quickly, the story is, it's a beautiful thing. He is a doctoral student who is studying the etymology of rare insects in the Southwest. And he goes to discover all this and he goes to talk to Native American healers. And he gets this one guy, Don Juan, and um, who says, why are you studying bugs, you know? And, you know, Carlos says, yeah, okay, just give me what I want. I got to do this dissertation, get out of my, you know, respectfully. And Don Juan turns out as a sorcerer. And he, he involuntarily, he takes Carlos as his apprentice. He says, you're my apprentice. Oh, yeah, thanks for it. Nope, you're here, baby. And the whole story. But one of the le or first lessons he, teach he teaches Carlos is they're sleeping and this and Carlos is an urban guy, right? He's not experienced any of this. He's sleeping out in the desert with Don Juan. In the middle of the night, Don Juan gets him up, says, "Mountain lion, run!" And they're near a cliff, and somehow they scale the cliff. They fall asleep, and they wake up in the dates the next morning. And Carlos looks. He goes, "How did I scale that cliff?" You know. And Don Juan says, "Death was your advisor." And he says, death is your advisor, always over your left shoulder. And the trick is, consult death so you can better appreciate life and see where you're going. But when you turn around to look, don't get hypnotized by death. That's the practice. Consult wow. death, but don't get hypnotized. And so we do, we play, because we're human, we play this game. To go back to your question, we either turn and get hypnotized and then we run away farther or we run and never look. And we have to be in conversation because life and death are part of that mystery we started with. And they make everything we go through all the more precious. And, you know, so I'll, I'll move to a moment that was about eight or nine years later. And, you know, after going through all of this, you're forever going for checkups and, um, you know, first a month, then three months, then six months, then a year. Um, and, you know, like a war veteran, and, and many people who've been through through this, I know, feel the same way. You know, if you get a pimple on the scar line, uh, on your scar line, you know, it's a two, you know, uh-oh, right? And of course, that's where the, they come, you know, that's, uh, and I remember about eight or nine years out from the end of all my treatments and everything, um, I was taking a shower and sure enough, I felt a little 
blip or something. And in 30 seconds, I, everything went through me. I, you know, adrenaline, fear. What, I, uh, what, what if this has come back again? Why? I don't need it at this. I'm, I'm fully awake. Thank you very much. What if it doesn't work this time? What if I have to get chemo? What if it does it? What if I die? You know, all I, within 30 seconds, I went through all of it. I was sweating in the shower. And then I said, okay, what if this is, what if this is it? What am I going to do? And I took a deep breath and I said, I'm going to finish my shower because God, love, life, the mystery, beauty, it's all right where we are. There's nowhere else to go. And everything is precious. So this, this unfolds, you know, when we stay in conversation with life and death over a long period of time, we are initiated into the art of acceptance, which is not resignation, the art of acceptance. And so that was my first big acceptance that, okay, for everything, for everything I've been through, yeah, this might come back and I might die. Now what? Now I'll live. That's the only thing to do. Now I'll live. Mark, I think we can all agree. We've watched people in our lives um, from afar and they, you would think that they would be happy. They have everything in the world that um, many perceive makes you happy, but they're not. And then on the flip side, you have those individuals who you wouldn't assume that they would be happy, but they are more joyful and grateful than you would ever expect. What do you think it means to be living? Or how do you live your most fulfilled, happy life? Well, for me, and I can only talk for me, um, I think that the, the, the most challenging and beautiful thing is to be as fully human as possible, to hold nothing back, to be completely present, and to meet everything and everyone with, when we can, because we're human, we can't, but when we can, with full awareness that this has never happened before. So, you know, when I talk, when we're talking, you know, um, most of the time when we talk, even meaning well, you might be sharing something difficult that you're going through. And I'm already going through the stories I have, the things I can share that will help you. But as soon as I start going through my file cabinet, I'm not present. If I really listen to you, I don't know what I'm going to say next. Because life is unrehearsed and unrepeatable. And so, you know, I don't want to do away with technology. They're tools. But this is one of the things that's happening in our modern world. If we don't meet the outer life with an inner life, then the way water fills a hole, the characteristics of existence will become our default values. Not because existence is mean or evil, but because that's what will happen. We have to meet, inner has to meet outer. And so, you know, today, while we can, you know, it's wonderful. Look at us. We're here talking. We can record. We can see, you know, as if we're in almost in the same room together. But because we can record it, because we can play it back, because we can tape it, life is still unrepeatable. 
And so what, what this causes for us in, in the modern world is not to do away with progress, but how do we accentuate the inner life? So, so, so for example, 150 years ago, before, you know, we, we had electricity and before we, you know, we didn't have gyms and we didn't have to do aerobics and we didn't have to jog or do all these things because what the work, the physical work we had to do to survive kept us fit. Well, I don't want to go back there. I like flipping the lights and having heat. Thank you. But but that so we had to develop physical aerobics to compensate for progress. And what we're talking about here is the next level of that. We need spiritual aerobics to compensate for the cost of progress. The fact that technology isolates us, we have to try harder to break through those invisible barriers, to really hear each other, to listen, to feel. You know, this is one of the things that... You know, I remember back in 9-11, right, about way, you know, my wife Susan and I were, we were traveling with friends in Montreal, and we actually saw the planes go into those buildings on TV. We were packing up to come home to New York State and waiting for our friends to pack, and we just had the TV on, and we just saw this. And then, you know, of course, we... You know, those images have been replayed thousands of times. Well, I don't need to see it a thousand times. The value of that we can have news instantly all over the world is so that a thousand people can see it once, not that one person can see it a thousand times. And this is part of the spiritual aerobics. I have to see it until I feel it and then turn it off because it will only anesthetize my heart and my compassion. This is part of the spiritual aerobics we have to enact and inhabit together. So, so Mark, I'm, I'm one of those people who, honestly, it, it's tough for me to get in touch with my spirituality. I, 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 I'm, I'm a person of faith. Um, I'm an action person. I'm a logic person. And when it comes to that spiritual aerobics that you're talking about, what are some things that somebody like me could do to become more spiritual and what are some everyday things or some easy things that somebody who is more in their head as opposed to, you know, maybe in their heart, uh, what are some of those aerobics that, that we can do? So, so th thank you for that. So the one thing is let's not, let's demystify it and we don't even need to call it spiritual. Let, let's call it aliveness. Let's just call it alive. You know, the, the thing is um, we are all in relationship to everything that is not us. So like if you, and I'll get to the specifics, but let me just couch it this way. If you believe in anything larger than yourself, I would say you're a mystic. As soon as you try to name what's larger than us, then everybody goes to their corners. Oh, it's Allah, it's Buddha, it's science, it's nature, it's nothing, it's everything. I don't really, at this point in my life, I, I don't care what we call it. I want to compare notes on how we relate to everything larger than us. That's like Two fish comparing notes about the current that they're swimming in. That's helpful. That's useful. Okay. So in this regard, you know, I can, I 
um, I can have a conversation with an atheist because, you know, they believe in something larger than themselves. They just call it nothing. I call it everything. So what? We can still talk. So now to the specifics. Okay. So this is how do we stay in the current of life? How do we recover? Because being human, we, you know, we have to sleep every night. So we're not going to stay 100% awake and heart centered all the time because we're human. But the point, so, so every one of us, I believe, has to develop a personal practice of return. That is, when I fall asleep, how do I wake up? When I'm numb, how do I become sensitive? When I'm clumsy, how do I become agile? When I don't listen, how do I listen? When I'm confused, how do I become clear? So everybody has to develop their own personal toolbox for that. I can't give you, but some of the ways we can do that is by one is by slowing down. Often when I'm out of touch, it's because I'm moving too fast. So slowing down, I like to say, I, I like to try to move at the pace of what is real. What does that mean? Well, very physically, however, briefly when my mind my heart and my body move at the same pace, things seem a little more real. I watch the tree in nature and it glows, it starts to glow. Well, the glow is always there. I'm just in tune with it because I've slowed down. So the one thing is when you speed up, how can you slow down? When you meet things with your head, which is, I like to say it's like, uh, it's like a drawing. It's like two dimensional. When you see things with your heart, it's three-dimensional. So how can you slow down enough to feel it? And you don't have to do anything with the feeling. You just have to register it. It's, that's what gets the blood going. That's what gets... So, you know, when we listen to others, as I mentioned, stop predicting where the conversation is going. So these are things that you can just practice. You know, I would also encourage people who are listening, like I, I have three, and these are just for me, but I would invite everyone to create three kind of rituals you do every day, simple. You personalize them. For me, you know, every day I start the day, <clears throat> we don't have kids, we just, just my wife and I and our very spoiled yellow lamb. And so I'm up, I'm a morning person. My wife who's a potter is a night person. So I'm up always earlier. So the first thing I do in the morning is I open the blinds. I let light in. The second thing I do is I care for something living. I take care of our puppy. And the third thing is I do something for someone I love. I always make coffee for Susan before she gets up. Now, if I'm going too fast, and this is the difference between ritual and habit. If I'm going too fast, none of those are meaningful. If I'm already on my to-do list, or if I'm like take today, if I was this morning thinking about talking with you guys instead of where I was opening the blinds and feeding the pup and making the coffee, they're not a ritual. It is complete presence that makes ritual meaningful. And when I'm not present, ritual turns into a habit. So going off of that, one of my rituals that I actually started three years ago um, was I read your book of awakening every night, uh, the passage that is the one you're supposed to read on the date. And I'll journal about what's coming up for me. And then I do a gratitude practice where I write three to five things every night that I'm grateful for. 
Um, this oh, that's book, wonderful. The book is on my nightstand for the last three years. Um, actually, we've worked with your publisher and we're going to be giving away some copies of it. Oh, um, thank you. That's so sweet. Yeah. To listeners. But this book has truly impacted my life, the way I look at things, um, how I approach situations. How did you write this book? Because there are some stories in there that aren't yours. There's some that you've borrowed. There's quotes. It is a beautiful, beautiful like writing. Oh, thank you. Well, so so back and you know the book, I really wrote it in three or three or three three and a half years back, like ninety seven. It came out in two thousand originally. And, um, but, you know, on the other side of my cancer journey, you know, I have people in my life who are in all kinds of recovery. My dearest friend, I mentioned, he's almost 40 years in recovery as an alcoholic. Uh, my wife is the, the her, her father's no longer alive, but he was a terrible alcoholic. So she's an adult child. So, you know, I, I had people in rooms all around me and I noticed that, you know, they were using like day books. And they were used. I mean, they'd be beat up. They'd be in cars. They'd be in bathrooms. They'd be in coat pockets. And so on the other side of my cancer journey, I very much thought, gee, this is like a modern form, this daybook thing. And if I could fill it with small doses of what matters, I could maybe give something that back that would be useful for others on the journey. And so what I started to do was, I kind of had, you know, I had all these notions of feelings, questions, stories, metaphors that I wanted. There was a bucket of what might be ent individual entries. And being a lifelong teacher, I had all these quotes from teaching of all these, you know, I said, well, I could, if I can put a quote with everyone, I could bring other voices into it, you know. And then, so I wound up and, you know, at first, because you think it's, or I thought, you know, well, it's a, they're little entries, one for each day, but it was, you know, there's 365 of them. It was you, it was a huge project to, to once I got into it. So I actually wrote all of the entries first, and then it took me almost a year to actually imagine and try on all of the meditations. I mean, I was actually like, you know, out in the park where off of where I was living um, in the good weather, you know, sitting on a chair, thinking, trying these things that I was imagining. And, and then it took me a couple of months to actually, cause they weren't yet placed in the, in the order that they are across the year. So it took my, my wife, Susan got me um, a huge, I mean, it could cover almost a wall, a huge kind of erasable planner that had for every day of the year. And so I just would, every day I'd look at this massive bucket of all these entries. And then I'd say, well, you know, you can read it, you can open it anywhere. You can read it at random. But if you were to go from the beginning of the year to the end, and I, how would it, could there be a journey? And so then I started to place things across. And so then it, it slowly started to fill in very intuitively. And then, then it was done. 
it's so interesting because sometimes I'll be at a certain place in my life or feeling something and I read the entry up for that day and I'm just like wow did he nail it did this like speak to me and exactly is what I need to hear or how I need to challenge or look at something differently um and it doesn't matter how many times you come back to that passage so this will be my third year doing this you still come back to it differently and it still speaks to you and wherever you are currently well, thank you. You know, I think that that is more than a tribute uh, to me, you know, because often people will say that, gee, it's as if you wrote that for me. And what it's a tribute to is like my one uh, kind of commitment in writing that book, which has been a commitment with all my books, but that was an early book. And so was that I only, I had a commitment only to write when I was in my heart. And, and so what that does is then, because I believe in this, this mystery, this kind of law of human beings, if you will, that when I go into the depths of me, I find you. When you are, are truthful in your own center, because in the center, we're all, we all meet in the center. We're all unique individuals, but we all meet. So it's a tribute to the fact that, that I could... If I only went there when I was heart-centered, then of course, when you would go there, you would find yourself too. You've said before that you live from your heart, not your head. I think in today's society, it's really hard to get out of your head, not to overanalyze, or even when you're talking about when you're in the shower, going through that anxiety and all the emotions of fear of what if you had cancer again, instead of kind of not building up that nervousness or fear how did you make that switch or what kind of practice do you put in place so that you're not so much in your head and living more from your heart well i think i think it goes back to you know what david when we were talking about about what things we can practice every day i think for me it comes back to presence the practice of presence of all, you know, we can drift up in our head and how do we stay in a more embodied place? So I, you know, right, like now I'll give you an example in my writing, my writing practice after all these years, you know, when I was younger, discipline meant stick to it, don't get distracted, persevere and stay focused till you can accomplish something. Well, discipline is very different for me now because now, I mean, you know, the first book, the first two books, there's always a, a kind of insecurity. Like, am I ever really going to finish this? Really? Am I going to, is this actually going to happen? Well, you know, I've written many books now. And so um, I know that I'll finish them. And so it's different but now, just what we're saying it's not even about the writing. It's about being the poem, like I said earlier. So when I am in this space, writing is actually listening and taking notes. So when I am in this very present space, open to life, feeling it, my antenna are up, my heart is open. And we all know this, whether we write or not, it's not about writing. We suddenly, briefly, we are in timeless time. You know, we have that, that sensation like, 
whether you're gardening or you're playing music or you're playing with a friend or your dog, whatever you're doing. And all of a sudden you go, my God, where'd those two hours go? How'd that happen? That's because we are so present. We enter time. And that's what I really want to do when I'm writing is enter time. So now say I'm writing here, usually like I'm writing, my wife's out in her pottery studio. Say we're going to, we typically get to, you know, come back and meet in the house at, uh, you know, five, five thirty, six and, you know, have start to think about dinner. So if I'm working and I'm in, in, in timeless time and then somewhere, even though I'm experienced at this, somewhere about four, four thirty, I go, oh, yeah, we're going to meet soon. And then all of a sudden I get a thought. Well, maybe if I really focus here, maybe I can finish this chapter or this poem by the time we meet. Now, as soon as I have that thought, discipline is drop it and walk away because I'm no longer in my heart. Now I'm moving through time. I'm manipulating time. I'm not in time. Now... It's an object. It's a product. I'm not relating to it anymore. I'm manipulating it, even though I care about it. So the practice is the work of self-awareness is not to demonize it or, or say, I'll, I'll, I'll never do that again. I will because I'm human. The practice is one of return. The practice is whether it's a poem or it's a person that you love and care for is to start to recognize when you drift up and you're no longer in time so you can come back down. So that means if we're in conversation and I love you dearly and you're going through something difficult and we're at Starbucks and, um, and you're you know spilling your heart to me and I'm listening and then all of a sudden I'm distracted or I'm tired and I drift off and I missed something important you said well being truthful and in relationship is saying is not pretending that i got it and figuring out what i missed it's saying wait a minute i got distracted or i'm tired and i what you said was important but i just missed this let's back up and enter again that's the that's part of the spiritual aerobics where when we're texting or we're doing something and we go we call someone up and say, you know, I just, I, I sensed something here in your text, but I just couldn't get the feeling from the text. So can we talk? Can we actually like talk? I mean, text is fine, but sometimes it's not enough. And so how do we, that's part of the practice. How do we re-enter time? And that's part of the way that we regain um, how rare it is to be here. You know, Mother Teresa said that courage was doing small things with love. They don't have to be big. Just where you, the work of self-awareness is paying attention to your own rhythms. So you know when you're drifting up, when you're disconnecting not to blame yourself so that you can return. Uh, last year, you released the book of soul, which is 52 paths to living what matters. And you ended up breaking the book into four sections that represents like different passages of life. How did you end up with those four sections? Because, you know, life has so many journeys and we go through so many different stages. How did you end up with just those four? 
Well, I think that, you know, I think there, there are themes that, that we all keep returning to, not just me. Just as in music, there were only seven notes in the scale and all the music in the world is made out of them. So, you know, there, as much as we try to make things new and different, if we're, if we're truthful and feeling, we return to these same kind of archetypal things. And so, you know, the first one is our walk in the world. We're like it or not, we're here. And we can be introverted, we can be extroverted, whatever it is, no one gets out of being here. You might want to be a recluse, you might want to live in the city, it doesn't matter. You're still going to, you know, it's like, and that's like, you know, there's a little quippy story about two fish in a very strong current swimming in the river and one fish looks to the other and says, I'm exhausted, I, want, I don't want to do this anymore. And the other fish says, keep swimming, yeah, you know, good luck, you, this is it, you got no choice. And we have no choice, we, are, we live in the river of experience, we will walk in the world, the question is how. And so the second section is our true inheritance. And so if we are going to walk in the world, and this is when I was talking about having the inner life meet the outer life, you know, there's so many things we can learn from so many people, from history, from everywhere, but it's all to help us discover and inhabit our own gifts and our own wisdom. What is our true inheritance? You know, so a question that I often ask when I work with folks in a, you know, in a retreat, can you describe, and our listeners can, can explore this if they're moved to, can you describe one quality that you were born with that no one gave you and no one can take away? You, didn't, you weren't taught it. You didn't inherit it. You, just you. It might be your smile. It might be your curiosity. It might be your uncanny instinct to sense when other people are hurting. I don't know. But can you describe one quality that you were born with and no one gave you and no one can take away? This is a way to investigate our true inheritance. And the third section is widening our circle, that we are more together than alone. And so once we have a sense of who we are, the challenge is to be who we are everywhere. And we need that more than ever now. You know, one of the things that's happening, which has happened in other you know, every generation goes through what we're going through globally. These are, this is our time, our turn. But, you know, one of the things, uh, this is from another book, but I quote, there's a developmental psychologist, Robert Keegan, who teaches at Harvard. And he had this very insightful thing. He defined centrism, like egocentrism or national you know, centrism, anything where you see yourself, yourself or your beliefs as, as the center of everything. He defined that as mistaking what is familiar as true. I think that's profound. Mistaking what is familiar as true, because this is going on today with a good half of our society. Because if you only welcome what's familiar and you think it's true because it's familiar, how do you ever grow? How do you ever learn? And then what? And then if you see what's familiar as true, then then you see what's new or different as false. Go away, push away. You're not like me. That's not education at all. No matter how little or more you know, education is welcoming all you don't know, and that goes all the way back to my neurosurgeon, John Pop. 
I'm alive because he welcomed what he didn't know. Yeah, you, you've given us a lot to think about. Uh, and I think uh, this has been an incredible uh, conversation uh, that we would love to continue. Um, look forward to reading your book, uh, more of your books uh, and highly encourage people to, to check them out. Uh, so thank you very much for, for joining us today. Oh, you're so welcome. Yeah, for sure. We always end with the same three questions. I'll, I'll ask the first one. If you had to pick a quote or a mantra that you feel defines you or that you live your life by, uh, what would that be? Well, I thought, as I thought about this, there are two. One, one, one is a small poem of mine that came during my cancer journey. And the other is a, an old Lakota saying uh, in the Native American tradition. And that saying is, the longest journey you will make in your life is from your head to your heart. The longest journey you will make in your life is from your head to your heart. Not because we're slow or stupid, because things that matter take time, which is so, especially with how the speed of everything today, things that matter still take time. And the poem, which came, comes directly out of my cancer journey and has been a mantra for me, is called Endgame. Death pushed me to the edge, nowhere to back off. And to the shame of my fears, I danced with abandon in his face. I never danced as free. And death backed off the way dark backs off a sudden burst of flame. Now there's nothing left but to keep dancing. It is the way I would have chosen had I been born three times as brave. The second question we ask every guest is, if you could relive any one day, what day would that be? Well, you know, when you asked that, I thought that was an interesting question. And, and I, I wrote a, a, a small paragraph about that, kind of a prose poem. So let me read it to you. You ask what one day would you relive if you could? Well, honestly, none. Oh, as soon as you ask, dozens of days broke surface in my heart, like old fish leaping at dusk. I immediately saw my grandmother sitting on her stoop in Brooklyn when I was a boy. And then the day I met my wife, Susan. And of course, the day the tumor vanished from my skull. And the moment of vision in which I discovered each of my books. And that day in the hospital, when my father reached for me across eternity. But I would relive none of them, for they live in me. The essence of each ties me to life itself. So I have to say that I would relive today, not this day, but the unfinished moment that keeps moving through events like a breeze through a curtain. At the center of each day, is an unseeable pulse of life that living reveals the way a pearl is pried from an oyster. It is feeling that unseeable pulse of life that I want to relive more than the moments or days that carry them. That was incredible. This has been such a special conversation for all of us. I can tell you it's exactly what I needed today this year. So thank you. Um, 
So the final question is my question, which is if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, what song would that be? Well, so there's, there's one for me and one for my students. So one, the one for me, it goes back to Earth, Wind and Fire, their, their song Devotion. That from the time I, 40 years ago, when I started teaching high school, I would all, before I would start a semester, I would play that song before walking into the empty classroom. And I still play that before I start a retreat or, or something. That, that's my, my go-to song. And for my students, it's one that is, a, that is company to explore to enter time. And this is a, a Keith Jarrett instrument. Do you know Keith Jarrett? Oh my God, Keith Jarrett, J-A-R-R-E-T-T is one of the legendary jazz improvisational pianists. He's like a Mozart, he's incredible. And there is a piece of his called Hourglass. And it's the, there's two parts, they're both wonderful, but it's the second part, Hourglass part two. You can, you can Google it by Keith Jarrett. And it is just, uh, it's a river you can ride in, in, into everything that matters. Great. I will add both of those songs to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist on Spotify. Mark, it's been such a pleasure. Um, we are looking forward to uh, hopefully one day continuing the conversation with you. Um, your publisher has been phenomenal and we are going to be able to give away five copies of oh, um, both of your books, the Book of Soul and the Book of Awakening to listeners. So um, we hope that they take something away from this conversation and kind of dive into living a more meaningful, purposeful life. So thank you again so much. Well, you're very welcome. Thank all of you for all you're doing. It's great to be a part of it. And, and I look forward to uh, continuing some another time. Thank you.